Fail podcast. I'm here with Nate Frontiero. Um, this is a special anniversary edition of uh, Movie Fail podcast. We're going to be talking about The Dark Knight, uh, which has its sixth anniversary this Friday, um, which is uh, a kind of a big deal uh, for our site because The Dark Knight is, and we'll, we'll get into this in a moment, but The Dark Knight was the first review uh, ever posted on Movie Fail. Um, and way back in 2010, so this was this was quite a while ago. Um, so I'm going to uh, Nate and I have very different backgrounds with the movie, uh, and we've now revisited it uh, six years later, and we're going to be talking about, in retrospect, what's uh, what's changed in the superhero world, what's changed in filmmaking, um, where Christopher Nolan's career has gone, things like that. So um, first, why don't we start with what what. Um, why don't you start, Nate, with just your your history with uh, The Dark Knight when you first saw it when it released back in two thousand and eight? Okay, yeah, I actually saw The Dark Knight on its release date. I saw it on Friday, July eighteenth. Uh, so this Friday will kind of be um, sort of a rounding out of that circle. Um, I was I was with a friend of mine, and we went down to uh, Gloucester Cinema, which is the uh, local theater in my town, and. We saw the movie. It was just uh, sort of no uh, extra bells and whistles in the presentation, just a regular um, widescreen uh, cut of it. And um, it was sort of my first introduction, actually, to this trilogy. I hadn't seen Batman Begins in the theaters. I had vaguely heard of it, um, but I was going into The Dark Knight basically as its own standalone film. Mm -hmm. And... um, I I was basically immediately entranced by it, and it sort of in a shocking way from the the prologue. I had never, up until that point, really seen a film sort of open in such a violent way with uh, the bank robbery and sort of each of the robbers picking each other off as they turn on each other to try to get a bigger share of the the amount of money that they're robbing. Uh, from the bank, and it just, it sort of right away got me captured in in the story, and I don't know, I suppose, um, I did see this definitely when I was a ways younger, I was um, heading towards 14, um, so it was a It was, it was a while ago, yeah, for sure. Yeah, uh, so yeah, at 13 years old, I didn't really have the perspective totally on this film that I think I have more of now mm-hmm. um, but it was definitely sort of I think the first big film that I started to understand and want to explore uh, in greater depth right so so it got you more interested in the in the I guess the analysis of, of films or film filmmaking or or at least to better understand how they're made or uh, to think more critically about them is that is that what you're saying Maybe how they're made, but also, and almost more so, the story itself and, and the sort of the grandiosity of it and mm. and the the scale. It got me sort of in, invested in a film of this scale and in films of this scale and to try to follow this story. And it made me care about these different characters in a way that other sort of very action uh, action-packed films hadn't really mm-hmm. connected to me um, in that same way. 
so I feel like it was sort of a that kind of a change. And uh, as, as far as a critical analysis, I think that that maybe came later. But definitely once I did get to that type of place, this was one of the first films that I sort of went back and started to, you know, sort of pick apart, examine from under the uh, the microscope. Right. Yeah, for sure. No, that's a, that's really interesting. That was not the case with me, um, with the dark Knight. uh, not, not for the, the film's fault. There, no film really until I think it was red, which is part of the three colors trilogy. When I really started to look at movies in a more in depth manner, you know, in a more critical way, looking at filmmaking, the way colors used, you know, a very formal, uh, sort of, uh, analysis and, and critical, look at, at these things, but but The Dark Knight was the first movie I reviewed uh, ever, and uh, okay. we'll, we'll get into that a little bit later, because that's, actually, it's not the first, it's the first written review. I, I actually reviewed um, Watchmen and Quantum of Solace, uh, and, <laughs> which was, and th- that was a very long time ago, back when Movie Phil was just a podcast. I'd actually started okay. as a podcast, um, and uh, those were discussions sort of like we're having now. Um, and, uh, that was a long time ago, but the, the dark Knight I reviewed, uh, wrote up the review. And the reason for that was I saw it in theaters. I actually enjoyed Batman begins quite a bit. Um, I had seen it. I believe I saw it in theaters. I might not have, but I believe I saw it in theaters, but I was excited for, um, this film. I, I knew I liked the Joker particularly because of, you know, Batman, the animated series and, and the Joker is just a classic villain that most people in pop culture have heard of if they've heard of one comic book villain. And, and he was hinted at at the very end of Batman Begins, so that was a big deal for me. Um, right. And so I saw the film, and, and I remember the reason I saw it, I was getting really excited for it. Everyone was talking about The Dark Knight. Everyone was talking about Heath Ledger. Uh, and I actually, it was um, uh, the man himself, Roger Ebert, uh, with Richard Roper on At The Movies. Um, they had a they go through it several movies each episode or, or back when the show was on, um, they would go through several movies. And one of them was, uh, for, for this particular week was the dark Knight, And they were talking about how it was just the most incredible experience and, uh, easily the best superhero movie they had ever seen and, and things like that. And I, um, I, so I was very jazzed to see it. And Batman is also, by the way, this is an important side note. Batman is absolutely my favorite superhero and no question Hands down, I've I've always been a fan. I was as a child, I was a fan of all of the um, you know Batman, Batman Returns, and Batman Forever, and to some extent Batman and Robin because uh, I was a little kid. So to me, these things were absolutely breathtaking. Uh, I loved Jim Carrey when he was cast in a Batman movie; it was just perfect for me, you know, as a as a child. Um, and also, I believe Batman Returns was released in '92, which is the year I was born, and. Uh, Batman Forever was born, uh, was released, um, the year my sister was born. So, you know, it's right at the, uh, we were right at the cusp of when these movies were were released. And, uh, so I, I'm a big fan of the, um, of the franchise. Um, and, uh, so anyway, so I, I saw The Dark Knight and, uh, I was, I was disappointed, um, which was the big, the big, uh, sort of irony of, of all of this is that I love the, I love Batman so much. I love... Um, I trusted everyone who was telling me that this movie was fantastic, and then I saw the film, and uh, I was underwhelmed. Uh, and the reason I wrote a review, and it didn't happen until, as I said, in 2010, so it was a couple years later, uh, the reason I wrote a review was that I was so irritated, um, or not irritated, I was so frustrated and tired of explaining my thoughts about the movie to people, 
um, when they would talk about the Dark Knight because it remained in the um, in the sort of the zeitgeist for quite a while. That I decided I was just going to write it down and refer people to the article so that I could stop talking about it because it was just too. I was getting tiring repeating myself. Um, that was a long time ago. <laughs> that was uh, four years ago, and I, I like to think that my writing's improved a, a bit since then. And if you go back and read the Dark Knight review, which I encourage you to do if you if you're curious, it's not the best written uh, thing I've ever uh, put my name on. But it's what I will say is this: now that I've gone back and watched the film again, I think I could have been clearer on my analysis. But I agree with the general sentiment. Um, uh, and uh, we'll get into the actual film later, but it's interesting to go back and look at this review now that I've, you know, just seen the film again uh, with fresh eyes uh, many years later. So, um, and and you've also done that, right? So you've you've just seen The Dark Knight again. Yeah, I actually I had um, I had set out to watch it uh, last night and allow sort of a, a dreamscape to further smooth over the positive memories I had. <laughs> But I was um, interesting. Tactic. I was too tired. Uh, I had been working on some other things for the past few days and haven't gotten a lot of sleep. So I actually watched it uh, just earlier this afternoon. Um, I actually had an ultraviolet code in my Blu-ray steelbook that I hadn't used, and it had expired two years or expired uh in may so i tried the code anyway last night and it worked oh so i got so i got to watch it uh in high definition on my laptop discreetly which was nice um but looking at it with fresh eyes um definitely it sort of it ha- it hasn't sort of made me question the praise that i have vocalized about the movie but it has sort of brought back the sort of the feelings that I had when I first saw it, it has been evocative of those original emotions. Mm-hmm. And also, um, given the context of, um, say, you know, reading your review and reading other reviews and hearing other opinions about this film, I have been able to look at it and see things that I don't like as much, especially uh, given the presence of the, and well, the existence of The Dark Knight Rises, it has allowed me to sort of contextualize things about the film that I would have liked to see so a little bit more isolated than they were allowed to be, mm-hmm. given that this was uh, sort of a capped trilogy. Right. Um, but actually, my first exposure to the film wasn't just from sort of a blind uh, viewing going to see it on that uh, night in July uh, six years ago, but it was actually from a reading a cover story in Entertainment Weekly, which I've since basically sworn by for the reviews that I start with uh, when I want to find out whether I sh- sort of am further inkling to see a movie or mm-hmm. not. Um, and it was a cover story about the dark Knight, and they had, uh, Christian Bale in the cowl and Heath Ledger's Joker. And it was sort of a, an overview of the process of the film, but also very much a tribute because the new, the tragic news had just come out across the airwaves that Heath Ledger had, um, had passed away. And so I was uh, really deeply affected by that at that time. I was sort of nostalgically watching um, 10 Things I Hate About You Mm -hmm. um, and just thinking about him as an actor and and what he could be as an actor, especially given the snippets of The Dark Knight I'd seen in the beginnings of the advertising campaigns. Right, right. It was just 
I don't know. It was it was really crushing uh, for me, and so I almost went to see it as almost a gesture of respect. But I don't know if I believe that might be that might have been too um, too severe of, of my thinking back then. But I was definitely I wanted to see it um, and give a thoughtful look at at his final film, right, or one right. of, or what I would like to consider his final film. Um, I don't, uh, I haven't heard too many good things about the Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus. Um, but, uh, yeah. You know. I've, I've heard mixed things about that film, but I, I, I agree that this was also his big, you know, I don't think he got to finish that movie. Um, right. And so there's, you know, they did a lot of, uh, interesting like things. A, with... Some re-scripting to shoot it with other actors. Yeah, yeah, which is, which is interesting. And I, I, I am interested to see the film just for that, uh, element, um, but uh, but I agree that this this was probably his big you know his big moment that as, as far as we know from his career um, that we that we all got to enjoy uh, and we will get into that later uh, as I said so um, I guess we we can come back to uh, you mentioned the Dark Knight Rises uh, and we we mentioned Batman Begins and I think we can probably come back to that later as it um, as it relates to what we thought about the Dark Knight but. Um, okay. I think we should probably. Uh, why don't we talk about? So now that we've we've watched it again, um, I can offer uh, my just a very quick thought uh, about the film. Now that I've I've seen it again um, in in more you know in closer analysis, and uh, my feel my opinions of it have improved, but I've also um, I I can more clearly pinpoint my issues with the film. Uh, that really are um, that are what keep the film from being as great as as uh, as I had hoped it would be. I think it keeps it just you know just shy of yeah. I never I never thought the film was was bad at, by any stretch of the imagination. Um, okay, it's a it's a it's a solid, uh, well made film. Uh, it's just uh, you know there's structural things that I that I don't like about it that that ultimately keep you know hold it back. Um, and uh so but that being said i i did enjoy this viewing a little bit more than um than i have in the past uh and i will also and we can talk about this a little bit more uh uh specific more more specifically but um heath ledger remains um an absolute highlight of the film in every sense of the word he's he gave me chills all over again, and I wasn't expecting that because I've seen the film before. But he really, really gives uh, an, a performance that outclasses uh, everybody in the film. I mean, it's just on another level. Uh, and and every that's saying something in a film that includes Gary Oldman and Michael Caine and Maggie Gyllenhaal and all these really, really excellent actors. Um, but Heath Ledger's absolutely on another level, uh, and he was absolutely deserving of his, uh, Academy Award that he won. Um, and, and you said, uh, so did you say that, how did you, how did you feel about it now that you're revisiting it? About the entire film? Yeah, yeah, just as a, as a takeaway, like a overall feeling about it. Okay, I think I, the, uh, the past six years I, um, have introduced me to, a far wider spectrum of film mm-hmm. and of and of storytelling than uh, than the very very limited uh, one that I had when I was uh, thirteen. Right, right. Uh, which is um, 
sort of a, a very unsurprising uh, statement to make, but at the same time, um, I don't know. I simply, I, I was a little bit, sh- uh, or not more than a little bit sheltered uh, when I was younger. And uh, so uh, seeing a film like this really had a very large impact me on me at that time. But looking back at it now, I still feel just as positive about it. I still think that it's a phenomenal film and the way that I was invested in it is basically unchanged. But I do now have a much wider uh, sort of scale to to weigh it against mm-hmm. and to, to look at the smaller things that I have problems with or simply uh, sort of the format of a superhero adaptation. Um, and just as a standalone film, I have... Uh, much more to bring to the table uh, to sort of uh, sort of pick apart with this. I have a wider set of tools in my tool belt, so to speak. <laughs> in your utility belt. <laughs> in my, yeah, in my, in my utility belt. I, I have some better toys nowadays. Right, right. No, and I agree. I mean, obviously, uh, we... I, I, I went through the film program at the University of Massachusetts, and, and you've written about film, and we've both worked together at the Collegian in the film and television section. So uh, I I would imagine we have a little bit more to bring to the table now. I I agree. I actually grew up, um, this is a a side point, but since you mentioned uh, your your upbringing, I grew up uh, with a dad who, well, both in both cases. I had a a mother who liked to show us uh, long, sad dramas, often foreign with subtitles, uh, as kids. Um, (laughs) I remember uh, that's the way I saw... um, I'm trying to remember the name. Uh, Frida? It's about Frida Kahlo. I have no memory of the film, but this was a very long time ago. Okay. Um, which is, a, you know, one of, a, another one of those those films that just... Um, it, it it was not, you know, super stimulating for a young child. But So I saw those kind of movies from my mom. Uh, it was how I was introduced to... Uh, Wes Anderson was through her. Uh, she would find these little films, and she showed me Darjeeling Limited uh, as a result of that, and... Um, I actually loved it. She, she fell asleep. Um, and, and, uh, my dad was, uh, has always loved movies and would always sit us down to watch whatever the latest thing he had found, the latest indie film. So I grew up watching a huge array of films that he, um, would find, uh, you know, on message boards online. Oh, this film from Hungary or, you know, whatever. And so I would find films like Huckle and all these very, very tiny little films to, to watch, um, with Nell and I was his favorite film, and that's a very independent film uh, out of England. So anyway, all of that aside, so I had I had a little bit of a broader um, perspective coming to this, nowhere near what I have now, and also um, now that I've I've gotten a little bit more experience with older films, silent films, black and white films, you know that sort of thing. I I, I agree. It is um, it's an interesting it's interesting to come back and, and look at the Dark Knight uh, from that perspective. Uh, in some ways, I think it it reveals even more um, holes in what. It's hard. It's hard to to look at. The film is not an art film, and and that's that's an important thing to note. Obviously, that and this isn't something that I would ever um, hold against a, a movie. Uh, I speaking of superhero films, a movie that came out that very year, Iron Man. Uh, I adore the film from beginning to end. I think it's an absolutely fantastic movie, um, and it's one of my favorite movies. And so uh, I feel the same. I think that's that's also a phenomenal one. Right. Um, Right, I mean, and and that movie doesn't really have anything um, uh, indie or avant-garde about it, but it's just a really fun, well-made movie. 
uh, and and I really enjoy it. So so that I won't hold any of that uh, against um, the Dark Knight, but um, my my questions about uh, its or my analysis of its quality, uh, let's let's say that are are largely due to um, uh, more formal things like uh, like structure and and um, some of the uh, filmmaking aspects of the film. Uh, editing, you know, that sort of thing. So uh, I guess having said that, we should probably, instead of dancing around the subject, dive right in. Um, right. <laughs> right. So, uh, so, I saw, so I saw the whole movie. I, I, you mentioned the opening bank heist. Um, I did, yeah. And I love that scene. I love, I think I love, every scene with, with Heath Ledger is A+, a, plus, a fantastic, fantastic moments uh, in the Absolutely. movie. Absolutely. Um, he's, he's fantastic. Uh, the schemes written for him are, are fantastic. Um, there are plot points that don't really fit for me, um, with him, uh, particularly, uh, about halfway through the film. And we'll get into the fact that this is halfway through the film and that's problematic, uh, in terms of pacing. Um, but about halfway through the film, he ends up in jail. Uh, you know, they have their game of chicken, he ends up in jail, and there's a, um, he has his elaborate escape from, um, from prison, and, and there's a lot of moments there that don't seem to add up to logical, uh, they, they don't, they're not, it's not a logical train of events, so he, he gets caught, he gets thrown in jail, um, and then it's all somehow part of his plan, so he planted a, an explosive inside of a guy's stomach, because he knew all of this was going to happen, um, Gordon unhandcuffs un- him and nobody ever re-handcuffs him. Um, they leave one guard to guard him. And then when he holds a shard of glass or whatever it is to a cop after, as he's trying to escape as a hostage, um, they immediately succumb to his demands for a phone call. And just the whole, that whole scene, Heath Ledger is, again, incredible. It has nothing to do with his performance, but the way those sequence, that sequence of events, um, hands out to me felt uh very illogical and it was actually very reminiscent of later films like um skyfall and uh, uh into darkness um star trek into darkness where we have villains somehow masterminding uh an entire plot that is predicated on them getting caught and then they're abdu- or they're um the people who capture them to follow a very specific set of uh, actions that will then lead to their escape. And to me, those plots have, have never made sense. They don't make sense in Star Trek. They didn't make sense in 007. And they, and I didn't feel that they made a whole lot of sense in the dark Knight. So, um, but aside from that, I think it largely, these, these, uh, his scenes are, are absolutely phenomenal, but, um, yeah. So I think, yeah, I, I actually agree, uh, in a sense with what you're saying about that specific scene, that was one of those moments that looking back at it, I um, sort of stepped away from and thought, well, well, no, you can't have a phone call. You know, they like they don't they don't need to give in to his demands, and they shouldn't and probably wouldn't have given in to his demands to the best of their abilities. I would have thought that they would try to, uh, in a real situation, restrain him again and or just get him subdued, Mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to just sort of the. um, It's almost played for. I think it's all played for last, the sort of look of confusion on the cop's face when all he asks for is a phone call. Right. No, it is. It is, and you're supposed to be, you know, enamored with his performance, but the train of events is so 
illogical that I was distracted from that question, because it's a callback to an earlier moment in that scene where he says, I want my phone call, and then he says it again at the end, and it's it's played for, like, a smug laugh, but it comes off as smug because it... Uh, it comes off as smug because they're like, isn't this such a brilliant plan that he seems to have come up with? Uh, yeah. And it just doesn't seem... Uh, plausible, and I know this is a superhero movie, but they spend a lot of time in the film explaining how you know things move from point A to point B to point C, and the I guess the the lack of explanation of how he got from A to B here is is what I had a problem with. It's kind of it's pretty amusingly lampshaded later when he's sitting in the hospital room with with Harvey Dent, mm-hmm. and you know he just looks at him. Pulling his his nurse his oh yes nurse yes yes off. I know what you're gonna say yeah and just saying you know do I really look like a guy with a plan mm-hmm. and and it's just it it almost it makes me look back at this at this specific scene that we're talking about and uh, and the answer is yes you have a very yeah, elaborate he, complex he, plan he that has apparently worked out plan. he's <laughs> a mad genius mm-hmm. and that I think is what makes him so compelling is that despite all of his chaos, uh, everything that he does is meticulously um, laid out beforehand, or the implication is that it is to lead to lead to a certain confrontation, which you know ends up happening at the end of the movie. I would argue that maybe perhaps the explanation, and we can get into this um, in just a moment because it is uh, something that uh, it's another issue I have with the with the film. And again, a lot of my problems have to do with really the second half of the movie. Um, okay, but. Uh, but I, one could argue that his his reasoning for saying, do I look like a guy with a plan, that whole moment is supposed to be his convincing Harvey Dent to succumb to being a crazy person. And that's that's the big moment that Harvey Dent falls from glory. And that's, you know, that's the, you know, he says, all I need to do was give him a little push. You know, that's what he says at the end of the movie. Oh, that's and, absolutely what he's doing that. I'm not uh, denying that in any way. No, no, right, but I I think that, so he might be saying whatever he needs to to get Harvey Dent to succumb, because the only way Harvey Dent goes through the rest of the movie believing everything is chaos and there is no plan, and the Joker knows full well there's a plan, and that his big speech about chaos is perhaps not accurate to his actual intentions, which is par for the course for him. He lies constantly about his past and his ideas. Um, Yeah, sort of lies built on lies. mm Mm-hmm. So um, he might have just been saying what he needed to to get Harvey Dent to break bad. <laughs> he does. That, that, that's what happened. And, and actually, uh, Harvey Dent's Breaking Bad is the uh, the uh, the name of our new podcast. No, it's um, it's uh, it's <laughs> actually one of Breaking m- Bad before Breaking Bad. Right. Exactly. And it's it's but it's one of my big problems with um, I have I have uh, a few issues with Breaking Bad, um, but it's a very very well made show, and that does show a very clear descent for its protagonist. Whereas this, and it, granted it had five seasons to do that, but, um, this, about five minutes. we had about five minutes for Harvey. You know, he gets burned, his girlfriend dies, and then Joker gives him a little speech and he just goes crazy. And, um, yeah, I wasn't sold on that, that character. How, how did you feel about Harvey Dent and Two-Face in the film? I thought, I thought I really enjoyed, um, looking at the entire arc, how, sort of the broader intention is painted out. I like the, uh, the specific, uh, the specific dialogue that sort of the larger points over it, uh, when, uh, Gary Oldman, uh, 
tells him um, as uh, Gordon that, you know, we both know that you're Gotham's white knight. And that comes back by the end of the film. And the uh, the throwaway line in, the, in their first meeting to this other name that he's referred to at the MCU, um, it is a little bit, um, maybe it comes off as a little bit contrived or a little bit easy to set up those lines and then to give them at just the right moments mm-hmm. for Harvey to realize I am, you know, I am Harvey Two-Face. This is me. Now let me turn my face and you can see that I am now this villain. Mm-hmm. And here is your establishing image. But at the same time, I I really enjoy the, the way that they sort of broke him down. The movie is maybe not as much about his fall from grace as it is about sort of the Joker's overall chaos, but he falls so much in line with sort of the Joker's whole attempt to throw Gotham into anarchy that it, it just, it felt very compelling to me and it still does. Um, I actually, I find that scene or actually an earlier scene when he first wakes up with the, um, the sort of the gauze on the other side of his face and he looks at the coin and sees the other side of it is burned. Mm-hmm. And I just, I love that moment. Really? And you you did, well, the moment, if I can qualify a little bit more, um, as he breaks down and this sort of, uh, this sort of sonic pulse starts to overtake the score um, and just washes away all the other sounds in the mix um, right before that scene cuts out. And... You know, you did say this uh, was not an art film, and I'm not going to dispute that, but I think that there are some very artful moments in it. Um, that one in particular for me, and another one just in the similar vein of a very visually striking uh, and, and orally striking uh, moment, orally rather, um, is um, the Joker, uh, Heath Ledger's Joker, sticking his head out the window of the cop car mm-hmm. and, and shaking his hair out as the camera sort of shimmies back and forth and the shot sort of warps in and out it, and this, you know, the sound sort of disappears. Right. Um, those, are, those are both very compelling moments. And as far as Harvey Dent's one, um, that at least was a convincing moment for me of him sort of going over the edge. Right. I, I, you know, I actually, I really like that scene where he's sticking the head, his head out of the car. Unfortunately, it comes just after the logical illogical train of events that led to his prison escape so while i could appreciate that moment on its own and this is really my complaint with the film in general every scene i could pretty much take out of the film and it sounds great it's the or even certain shots and certain it's really it's in context it's it's how it doesn't work for me and so i love that shot it's one of i'm not a huge fan of wally fister as i've said several times in other podcasts um as a person uh, I'm not, I think he's, um, you know, he takes pot shots at other cinematographers for no particular reason. Uh, yeah. and apparently as, as you reviewed, uh, Transcendence, not a great director either. Oh, it's absolutely atrocious. <laughs> um, but, uh, but I'll, I'll keep the fun of tearing that apart, uh, in its review. Yes. Yes. No. And, 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 uh, so, so I'm not, a, I'm not a huge fan of Wally Fister, but I was also never particularly moved by his cinematography either. Um, I have other cinematographers who I find to be just far more compelling. Having said that, there are moments in this film where you see glimmers of a much better cinematographer, and one of them is the Joker scene. Um, But going back to uh, Two-Face, I think that that scene is funny because throughout the the first introduction we get to Harvey Dent, we get four or five jokes about Two-Face. 
well before we see him turn into Two-Face. And I understand some of the audience, or probably most of the audience, has no idea that Harvey Dent in the comics becomes Two-Face. So those jokes probably go over their heads because it's a sort of an in-joke and that you know, it works better on rewatching. Um, but now that I am rewatching it, uh, you know he's going to become Two-Face. There's a lot of references there. Then we see the coin at that, you know, later point. Um, well, you see him, you know, his half of his face is in the, the gasoline. We see half of his face burning. Like, we know this is Two-Face. You know, we know that this is his villainous, you know, turn. And, right. and we've seen that already several times. So when we see the coin is burned on the other side, it's like, yes, we, we know he's Two-Face. <laughs> and then they hold off showing his face for so long. Not, I don't think, because it's a reveal, but because they're holding off on showing us the big, you know, effects moment of the film because it's the, probably the most complex CGI they had to do for the movie, I would, I would presume, because a lot of it's practical effects. And Yeah, I do remember reading that, uh, not to sort of break that up, but just a quick thing on the effects. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm recalling it might have been an entertainment movie article or some other source, but uh, where there were a couple options for this sort of the style of that sort of the, the two-face right. um, transformation. And the one that they went with in the film was for them uh, what they thought was the most realistic and a little That's bit stripped funny. back <laughs> from some of the, uh, from some of the CGI that they had planned to do. Right. Um, which I still think is, is pretty interesting, but on your thought that you were going on. Right. Well, actually, it's funny that you say that. I'm glad you brought that up because um, this is a nitpick, and I don't want to go through this film and nitpick things, but there's so much pretense for realism in these movies, and there's a lot of, I would say largely, aside from you know characters making strange decisions as we see with, um, you know, in, in the with Joker's breakout. Uh, aside from moments like that, there is a large, uh, a general attachment to, to realism in, in these um, that's maybe misplaced, maybe not, you know, to pick your um, uh, your side on that because, you know, some people have problems with how Nolan portrayed the, the Batman universe. Um, but I find it funny that they chose that as the a more realistic one and also that it t- exists at all in this f- supposedly realistic you know, but fictional world. Um, but that seems so similar to ours um, in many ways. And the, what I, get, I guess I'm getting at is that the way that they portrayed Harvey Dent's face is so, I guess, absurd. It's it's completely implausible that anybody would be able to speak, much less... It probably would not be alive. I'm, I'm just... I'm not a doctor, but I'm just going to guess that that would kill you. Um, and especially if you're not going to take any medicine or any of the things that, you know, he's like, he refused all medicine. Um, but it just seems rather infeasible. And, and what's funny is that they work so hard to work it into the plot that he gets burnt and it's not acid like it was in the comics and they do all these things. Um, but it just doesn't see for the rest of the film, you're looking at him going, this is like a character out of, you know, Pirates of the Caribbean, you know, this looks like... (laughs) You know, uh, this looks like Barbosa. This doesn't look like a real human. Oh, um, that's, that's too ridiculously on point. That's hilarious. It, it looks just um, like that scene in in Pirates of the Caribbean, the first one. And and so even when he drinks, there's that scene in the bar where yep, he drinks yep. a shot and it leaks the out. Same, it's the same moment. It's the same moment, and that works in that in Pirates of the Caribbean because it's magic or whatever they've they've made up the the and reason. Harvey for that. Dent looked at the corrupt cop and he said, 
you better believe in ghost stories. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And you kind of half expect him to say that. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but so it's just, it's just, it's almost distracting cause it's so silly, but you know, I, I got over that again. It's a nitpick. I just found it a, to be a funny moment, but I feel like at least the tissue in that eye would have been destroyed. He has two perfect set of, uh, a perfect set of two eyes still for the rest of the film. Right, and uh, but just everything about it, all the skin's exposed, the teeth are exposed, the and the, the, don't, the one thing I... white teeth, yeah. Yes, and one thing I will say about this movie is the, um, that is absolutely true, is it will look exactly the same now as it will, you know, in 20 years. The use of CGI in the film, I can spot it if I'm really looking for it, but it's almost not noticeable. When, when Batman first comes out of the Tumblr with his Batpod, that's a CG moment, but you wouldn't know it. It looks seamless, and uh, as immersion-breaking as Harvey Dent's face is, thinking about it medically, uh, in terms of the way it looks, it certainly looks very realistic, and I, I think one thing I will say, I, um, what I will say is that this film is really takes efforts to make everything seem like it could be happening in the real world, and I think that's really cool. Um right. I um, I absolutely agree with that. That's probably um, one of the uh, the main sort of points that I think I would get to about the film mm-hmm. is that wh- when I was rewatching it earlier uh, this afternoon, one thing I couldn't stop myself from thinking is that this is a film that looks like it very much could happen, especially to me. You know, disregarding for a moment the you know these illogical um, sort of leaps that it makes with the storytelling occasionally. Sure. sure. Um, but just the events as they transpire on screen uh, and the way that no one sort of frames it, it definitely looks as if, okay, this ridiculous thing is happening and this is chaotic and this is what it looks like and I believe it. And when I watch it, I don't really stop and think that I'm watching a superhero film or um, a comic book film. I just, I believe I'm watching just sort of a fictional account of something that very milk very well could have happened right um right and and i totally agree uh i don't know how much i feel that way about batman but when i see and aside from his as a absurd escape from prison and i'll that's the last time i'll refer to it but aside from that moment largely in the film what i would ask myself and i found myself asking during this movie was you know what if somebody did what he's doing what if somebody did that uh you know how would the world respond how would a city respond to um you know when when that batman imposter is killed and then hung from the top of a building um and hits the mayor's office window uh that that's crazy that's a crazy thing to happen and i think that it's really cool uh to 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 think about um this in such a in a realistic fashion in that sense having said that um this movie's supposed to be about Batman. Um, and, and the other thing is, the other thing is they shot it in real, in a real city. I think it was shot in Chicago. I could be wrong. Uh, yep. Uh, the major American city was Chicago. Right. Right. So they, so they shoot it largely in Chicago and it looks like Chicago. It's certainly, you know, we see the, um, the, the overpass and everything that looks, if you've been to Chicago, it's very, um, obvious, uh, which in, on its own has its own questionable, you always got the impression Gotham was more New York, but whatever. We can leave that aside. What I will sure. say is the older Batman films, the ones that you know I grew up with, or even Batman the Animated Series, uh, the DC Animated films, many of which are very, very good, um, or 
the Arkham Asylum, Arkham City game, video games, uh, they all take a very gothic, uh, interesting, almost fantastical look at a city that feels real but has its own personality. And there's something to be said for the that fant- fantastical element, not in terms of magic, but um, that it's almost otherworldly, or it feels like a real city, but not one that exists here. Uh, so that you believe that it's real, but you don't have this preconceived notion of what Chicago is like or what New York is like. You have what Gotham looks like. And I thought Tim Burton in particular did, and he influenced most of these other ones that I referred to really brought out the personality of Gotham in just the way, um, you know, buildings were, were, uh, the lines on buildings, the way the architecture looked. Uh, and it, sometimes it felt like a set, you know, these were older films, but you certainly got an impression that was, um, that, that was, that's totally different than anything you would get by shooting in a real city. So, on that front, I, I was a little disappointed to see how, I guess, pedestrian and kind of boring Gotham seems seems like just any other city. Yeah, I think uh, I will have to agree with you there. I think what what the film does more so with the city than make it look like its own sort of other space mm-hmm. is sort of frame it in this, uh, I want to say, uh, this sort of noir-inspired um light you know there's a lot of there's a lot of um a darkness in gotham and it might not look really that uh individual as far as a a city goes it, it um i haven't been to chicago but i um i'm sure that there's a recognition of the more blatant features of it that you can see and so maybe that takes you out of it but what i think is that it doesn't look like uh, it's a fully realized world that looks um, sort of like a location in a very um, a very shrouded light. There's a lot of uh, there are a handful of moments that I really like, but uh, that are sort of playing with these uh, flat blue and black uh, palettes, uh, which I think sort of transcend the entire film. Um, but as far as the city goes, it's really just sort of. Um, the color scheme and the light that it's being portrayed in and not so much making the city itself seem different. Right, right. I guess it's just a layer of, you know, Tim Burton has sort of gone off the rails, I, I guess you could say, in terms of his filmmaking, but the one thing that's always true is they're always very, even in his worst movies, you could find very stylistic choices. And what I liked about his style meeting Gotham was, you know, there was... I don't know if this was intentional. Uh, I'm sure he knows his film history very well. But um, if you go back to older films like The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari or um, other movies from the German Expressionist movement, there was this idea that if you took uh, angles and lines and you made... And these were sets. These weren't even locations. These were just sets. And you made them angular. You made them pointy. You made buildings in the background... um, you know, due to their their very form, the very geometry of what was what it looked like in the background, you could inspire a sense of dread or fear or confusion or chaos. Uh, and we don't see that as much on a visual visual front from the city. Now we do get that from uh, the Joker. We see that um, there's a very the moment uh, with where he sticks his head out of the car is a a moment that's not just orally interesting, but also uh, visually interesting because we see the symbol of order and um, justice 
the Gotham Police, uh, ostensibly, ostensibly the symbol of justice and, and order. Uh, and we see the uh, the Joker, who's you know has you know mangy hair and he looks unwashed and he's got makeup, clown makeup on, sticking his head out like a dog. Uh, right. And and the contrast between those is really interesting. We also see that when he burns the pile of money, and it's a very you know, um, that's a little bit easier, a little bit uh, more. Not not quite as as deep in in my opinion, but also another moment where we see the chaos come to life. But um, but it's a, it's a little just a little disappointing to see such a normal city surrounding such an interesting chaotic scene to have the city uh, sort of act to increase the emotional tension would have been would have been interesting. Sure. Um, so uh, another thing I just want to address. Um, this is an important question, and this is really why I wanted to have this discussion. Um, and that is, so artfulness, um, the, the way superhero movies look, uh, now as a result of the Dark Knight, which I, I, we can talk about, um, but just as very specifically the Dark Knight itself, why was it such a phenomenon? Why were people so enamored with the film? And why, uh, is it still something that's brought up on, um on, you know, in, in public fora, in, you know, in, in, in the zeitgeist. So one of the reason I wrote my review was because people kept bringing it up, kept using it as this example of modern filmmaking as the great, you know, the greatest thing since sliced bread, uh, as the saying goes. And I think, um, my frustration wasn't that it was a bad movie, but that I didn't understand. And I still, even now going back to rewatch it, don't fully understand what the, what what gave it this this uh, pop culture significance um, and why people f- were so uh, moved by it, so attached to it. So I'm, I'd love to get your opinion because I think you might fall more into that category than I do. Um, yeah, I think that's fair. Um, I it um, that's a I will I will give you this as a very hard question to tackle. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to give it uh, my best shot. Um, but I feel like the film. Uh, maybe sort of excessively spoke to uh, this sort of um, fear. Uh, uh, I know that Christopher Nolan at one time, um, I think this might have been around the production of uh, Rises, uh, said that he makes, he likes to make film about the things that we are worrying about today mm-hmm. um, or the things that worry us might be the quote. I'm not sure. Um and I know that uh, this is a sort of a very easy comparison that's uh, or not a, a very easy description, rather, that's sort of slapped on a lot of uh, darker looking or tense films. But I think sort of the the post 9-11 uh, sort of perspective, um, this kind of maybe took that in both uh, in both the grand scale of the overall film, but in the the micro scale of a single character versus um, uh, of a single character in a city versus um, a, um, a, a major city in a country. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it just it sort of took that conflict and that uh, that chaos and uh, made it very accessible and, and and presented it in in a way that was striving towards realism. And you know, I know we've had our sort of you know there are plenty of opinions about Nolan's um, 
adherence to, to realism or striving towards realism <laughs> with superhero films. Um, but I think that's that approach coupled with the sort of while tragic, the event aspect of it being Heath Ledger's last major film and an amazing performance mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in sort of a final film. I think that gave it a heft um, and and sort of gave it a relevance for moviegoers. How the film on a more meticulous level is, is made, how it looks, I don't know if that's so much truly beloved or as vocally beloved. Mm-hmm. I, um, I haven't heard all of my, uh, you know, fellow film buffs talking about the wonderful cinematography in the dark Knight, but I have, I I suppose that what I've seen is the reaction to the storytelling and and the overall, um, sort of the way they, the way they've turned the way that Nolan turned a superhero film into a psychological thriller. And I suppose the point now that I'm kind of getting to it, um, it really comes to a head at the end where he poses this social experiment to two groups of people right. who, who we are shown to be um, conventionally considered uh, sweet and innocent. The Joker hangs uh, sort of a, a shade over that. Um, and um, a group of criminals who are ob- objectively believed to be um, sort of of, of a less um, moral standard, a lesser moral standard, um, and I think th- what the film does for me, and maybe this is why it's been, it has f- seemed so impactful is because it takes these, this sort of gray on gray morality and sketches it across all of these characters. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, Batman as a vigilante is fighting for good, but against the rules of a system and sort of between the rules of a system and trying to dodge that. But we see in sort of the um, the the um, sanctioned um, law enforcement, um, we see a district attorney fall to this anarchy, this chaos, and mm. we see sort of the decisions made behind closed doors and the attempt to sort of smother things up, and and we see the corruption, and sometimes it is a little bit too. Sometimes it is a little bit easier. It, you know, we have sort of this mob story and, and corrupt cops because of you know, sort of an exchange of favors and then connections made and now they're forged. Right. And um, but I think that largely it is just painting this this sort of pull no punches picture of a, a, a morality spectrum in in people, and I think maybe that is what uh, really speaks to audiences the most, um, or at least about the film. Interesting. I mean, so I, I like that. I, I, that's an excellent answer. Um, I think that's an interesting point. Uh, I, I haven't heard much about the dark Knight recently. And, and what was funny is when the dark Knight rises was about to come out, a bunch of people went back. I was reading online. A couple of people had gone back to revisit the dark Knight. And a bunch sure. of people said, hey, you know, this movie has a lot of structural problems. I didn't notice that before. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, that's what I said. Why didn't anybody listen to me? <laughs> uh, so, um, of course, obviously they weren't listening. But um, but uh, but if if the, the focus is more on uh, the story and that sort of thing, then I, that makes sense. I, it's just, it was, a, it was more of a confusion to me because 
you know, people talk about this movie like it's going to be remembered in cinematic history, and I just don't see the cinematic relevance of a film like this. I don't... I think it's... I think even in the context of superhero films, Marvel, with Iron Man, made a much bigger splash. They made a... um, With Iron Man, they they set a tone for the rest of the MCU, which is now the largest franchise in in cinema history, and whether or not you like that is is aside, but in terms of cultural (laughs) impact, it's certainly done that. And the only movies that have um, been born out of this Dark Knight personality, this Dark Knight uh, tone, storytelling style, have been other movies that have been sort of touched by Christopher Nolan, namely Man of Steel and... and, um, and uh, and the Dark Knight Rises, I guess, uh, but it hasn't really spread beyond that. I don't get the impression there's a lot of impact based on what he did. You know, people said he changed superhero movies, but um, the only way he changed them is that if you see a dour sort of superhero movie, you go, "Oh, it's very Nolan esque," which isn't perhaps it's unfair to the Dark Knight, but it's certainly not helpful to whatever that is. It's certainly not been helpful or very impactful on the superhero. Industry, so I I think that um, it's it's interesting. I I appreciate um, that people enjoy the film. Um, it's a it's a solid. I, I I guess it's I just question its cultural significance. It's always in the and I don't really take the IMDb top two fifty to be anything any measure of anything, but it's always sure. in consistently listed up there with Inception, which I also have my own issues with. Um, um, yeah, yeah, I. Um, Inception doesn't stand in the same level of esteem as, as this one for me, but I can see where you're coming where you're coming from. With that. Right, and it's just it seemed to pop up and and then just remain there. And there are films that have done that in the past, um, like Fight Club, that tapped into something that you know. I wrote an article about the movies in 1999 and what that they all have something in common, and that did tap into something that everyone was feeling, I think, at the time, and that's why so many films about suburban men dealing with the fact that this is the turn of the century, dealing with middle age, we're so popular. Um, but if you go back and watch Fight Club, it has its own filmmaking acumen to also make it a significant film uh, beyond just what it did culturally and what it tapped into culturally. Uh, if, yeah. you go, if you go back and watch Requiem for a Dream, that's another film that did very unique things, unique filmmaking things with um, the way things were shot. There were uh, more frame or more shots in that film than... I, I don't know if it's any film prior, but it was radically more uh, shots we had in one film and the amount of information given to the audience. Um, but I don't, I don't see anything significant in The Dark Knight that's changed films. Uh, and so I guess that's, that, was, that was always my frustration, is that it was almost put in that light, but, um, but I, didn't, I didn't get where that was coming from, and I, I guess I, I still don't. Um, I think some of the things that, um, that I would say it changed, and... Um, and before I get into this, I really just can't resist throwing a quick pot shot over at Inception. I think all that was, um, why it's recognized in the way that it is, um, in whatever fashion, is just that it was sort of, um, the biggest, loudest, uh, culturally accessible, quote unquote, mind bender mm-hmm. of the year. Mm. And of the last maybe few years, no one had, maybe, at least to my cinematic memory uh come out and released a film um that did what that did in a way that you know everyone could go see and be confused and talk about it uh angrily on forums for months Mm -hmm. with people that didn't agree with them um and 
I don't know. I suppose that was that impact. You know, people could hang, argue about that spinning top for for days. On yeah, end of exactly. And 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 that I think there's there I can I can more easily observe. Even though I think it's a, um, it's funny. I gave it a higher score, but I think I enjoyed it more. Um, but I think that the Dark Knight is probably a more quality film, which sounds weird because I did give Inception. This is this is me now, not me when I. Um, although I didn't, my review of Inception is no longer online, but, um, I, at the time I did, uh, enjoy Inception more, but I think, but Inception's a lighter film, all, all things being equal, this film ends on a very down note. Um, and, uh, but I, but that I can see more clearly what people were so excited about. It was, you know, people felt like it was a puzzle of a film that they had to uncode and that was, that kept it in in the, the public dialogue. But Batman, or The Dark Knight didn't have that so i guess it was more i you're right maybe it tapped into um the 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 collective consciousness of of americans very specifically i think yeah i would um that is sort of what i was saying and and would stand by as far as um why it's lingered um but some of the things that it has done to say uh quote unquote uh change film the examples that i can think of are actually things that i'm annoyed with uh, (laughs) nowadays uh notably um, sort of Hans Zimmer's um, musical stylings I uh, really enjoy in the Dark Knight trilogy I love what he does um, with his themes although I will qualify that and say that uh, I don't think the Dark Knight Rises has nearly as original a score as it should oh, I, think funny. It, I think it basically takes uh, a, it, it gives its new villains themes of their own but otherwise, I think largely, um, and maybe I'm incurring some larger wrath from big Zimmer fans out there, but I think that it takes uh, themes from the first two and just sort of apes them, repurposes them, and then retitles them, um, which I was pretty disappointed with. I felt like I was hearing sort of the same music, but with the third movie's uh, Main promotional theme, yeah. materials on it. Yeah, and name. Um, but I think that what happened after... The Dark Knight, uh, the Dark Knight trilogy, and, and Zimmer's involvement is now we started getting these scores from. It didn't matter what composers they were from, uh, but we started getting superhero scores that had to have these dark moments, and they had to get uh, really loud and, and throw in uh, brooding brass and, mm. and distortion and these and these ridiculous strings in a, in a way just to create this sort of this tension that wasn't necessarily needed. Uh, you know, like, I, I feel like, and naturally, as I'm making this sweeping argument, I'm uh, at a loss for specific examples, um, but I'm, I feel like a lot of... So it's impacted musical scores, is what you're suggesting, or specifically in, superhero movie, movies. At least in superhero films, and, and maybe, I, I would I would probably say only superhero films. I don't want to say that this has made every single score um, uh, sort of brooding and... and and ridiculous, uh, given this context. I think that that sort of, you know, broodiness, for lack of a better word, uh, works in The Dark Knight. Um, I think, uh, as far as, you know, other DC films that have sort of sprouted out of Nolan, uh, the Nolanverse, and have actually still within the Nolanverse, because his hands are are in the production, but uh, this Hans Zimmer score for Man of of Steel, um, I think he's sort of retread uh he retreaded similar tracks um 
for that, although I do enjoy some of the moments in that score. I was going to say, I like the main theme in Man of Steel. My problem with, with that is that um, he was his hands are tied. That movie is really depressing and, um, <laughs> and dour and lacks color, and I've talked about this ad nauseum yeah, in the past. Um, but, but he, what else could you, what other score could you attribute to that movie? You couldn't put in the Iron Man soundtrack to that film. It wouldn't make any sense. Um, no, not at all. So, but, uh, so that's, that's sort of a... Uh... That's sort of a um, an end to itself there. Yeah, no, and, and you know what's funny about Hans Zimmer, just on a quick tangent, I, you know, I find that his work, I'm off and on about his work. I, I'm not compelled, all that compelled by his work on the Dark Knight trilogy. I do like the main theme in the Dark Knight Rises, but in general, I'm not enamored with it, overly enamored with it. I much prefer when he works on smaller films, and this is going to sound silly, but Kung Fu Panda, uh, he, he worked with, I think, John <laughs> Powell. Film. Yeah, I worked with John Powell on, on that. He's worked with um, he on Matchstick Men. Uh, he did an amazing subtle score that uses one theme in many different ways throughout the movie. Uh, in The Prince of Egypt, I know it seems random. It's another DreamWorks film, and he he did excellent excellent work with that. And so I think I think he's really interesting when he he does smaller things where he can really influence the score. But what the thing with big action movies is that it's hard to stick out when you have um, the reason I guess I really like the Dark Knight Rises main theme is that it's so different that it draws attention to itself in a way that still promotes the film. Whereas here, um, and many other action films, like, I couldn't name you a single moment uh, of music in The Avengers just because I, I, it oh, didn't, I it didn't stick out to me all that much. Um, <clears throat> it sort of just, it complements the action and it, and it rises and falls as it should in it's such a, a way that it, yeah, exactly. It does. It's functional. It does what it needs to do. It's not. It doesn't stick out. And I've always felt that way about the Dark Knight trilogy. And that's why hearing the the chanting in Dark Knight Rises is is so different than just random orchestral, uh, or not random, but um, the more uh, ordinary, straightforward. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Uh, orchestral tracks. Yeah, I I really love the um, the chanting. Uh, and I was actually, it's funny. I don't know, and this is coming back to sort of a, a nitpicking type of thing, but I I wish that there was more chanting in, in some of the pieces. I Because in the promotional materials for Dark Knight Rises, um, they really, really amped up that communal chant. I believe that Hans Zimmer maybe uh, sent out for thousands of uh, contributions. Yeah. Maybe that was like a public event. It was. I think they had been. fans contribute their voices to it. Yeah, and so you had this, uh, l- you had literal lesions forming this chorus um, of chanting, and they use it in the trailers uh, to really devastating effect. I think the marketing campaign for The Dark Knight Rises is uh, fantastic I, um, as far as building up a film mm. and creating hype. I think sort of the final trailer for that film um meaning the one that starts sort of on the bridge on that kind of purple sky and includes, you know, the moment where he says, you know, I haven't given everyone everything, not yet. Mm-hmm. I think that is maybe the best trailer or my favorite trailer, I will say. I'll step back a little bit. It's my favorite trailer uh, in the last few years, but largely in part uh, from what Zimmer was doing um, sort of in-house. He had sort of unique music that he produced for the marketing campaign that fell away when the film came around um, and I was a little bit disappointed with that. Um, 
And I think that his work, I would say that I'm also kind of off and on. And and maybe I will step back. I feel I've been, uh, I tend to speak very severely and very broadly. <laughs> and I think I need to sort of um, paint the strokes that I'm meaning to paint uh, with my opinions. And as far as Zimmer's music goes, I think that I'm really enamored with the main Dark Knight theme, the main uh, Rises theme, Bane's theme, and uh, why so serious, uh, towering sort of above them all mm-hmm. as just this in insane, um, you know, terrifying, uh, towering piece of music um, that is used so expertly throughout that film right. uh, in the Dark Knight. I believe. Yeah, I'll have to go back and really look at the Joker's themes because I I would imagine it's helping what's going on on screen uh, in a way that I perhaps didn't perceive. Uh, just just watching it and, and listening for it, so I'll definitely be f- focusing on that and try and, and go back and, and look at those um, those moments. But uh, so I guess musically, there's a lot of interesting things uh, going on, uh, or at least in terms of um, influence. But um, so yeah, I guess my question was mostly about uh, you know cultural significance of the film and things like that. Um, the one other thing I, I want to talk about with the movie itself is it's again structural. Um, and I just want to just get this out of the way, just in a general analysis of, analysis of the film uh, from my perspective. Now that I've seen it again, I, back in my original review, I said it has a lot of interesting scenes um, that feels that that on their own work really well, but di- but feel disconnected and don't um, almost seem to be biding their time um, in such a way that you know. They, and there are other reviewers who have said this since and before me. Um, that say that you know every time we're with Dent or with um, Bruce Wayne, we're always waiting for the next Joker moment because he's he's so magnetic and so uh, he stands out so much. Um, but I I think that that really comes to a head in the second half of the film, um, which is really where the plot starts to become overcomplicated. You know, by the time they're playing chicken in the street and Gary Oldman's uh, Gordon is now alive, you know we realize he's not actually dead; he's alive and. Um, then Joker's entire plot in the uh, in escaping from prison and uh, having Reese, uh, who apparently figured out Bruce Wayne is Batman earlier in the <laughs> film, and they that whole plot, the subplot that they bring back, um, it all feels like sequel material. Like that all should be included in a sequel. Um, th- there's there's not a lot of time to mourn for, let's say. Um, for Gordon, there's not a lot of time to see Harvey Dent's descent into madness. There's not a lot of time for a lot of these things. And I think that's really my problem with the second half of the film, is it feels so rushed. All of these things are dealt with so quickly. Um, by the time we get to the to the ferry, it's really a question of, uh, you know, are you willing to finish the marathon? It's it's exhausting. You're exhausted with all the plot that's, that's happened so far. And it's not that the boat scene is problematic. It, it's a fascinating scene. But it's something that feels like it would, it fits in another movie, or, or, uh, it might go right after the chicken scene, you know, yeah, or it fits might in a much shorter film. In a much shorter film, by the time that scene comes around, I'm you're just tired of the film, and, and I'm I, I'm tired of the film. I'm sure other people aren't, but there are plenty of people I'm sure who, who feel that way, and it's just it's a question of, you know, runtime. It's a question of where to put what and what to include in that film. It's almost like they had too many ideas. And it already is long at two and a half hours. It probably could have been three, four hours if they had put in everything they really wanted to get done. Um, but at that point, why not just you know leave it for a sequel? And and so I guess that was really my my problem with it uh, from a structural standpoint. Yeah, I think that um, 
I think that it is sort of plagued by um, those kind of um, pacing or investment issues in some of the characters, as, or, or not some, but like just the other characters uh, outside of uh, the the Joker scenes. And I know that when I was watching, as nostalgic as I am for this film, um, you know, sort of the the perspective that you had years ago that has sort of grown into uh, this. Um, beautiful veil that hangs over the the facts of the film. Mm. Uh, um, as um, as much as that sort of maybe smooths over or tends to smooth over my opinions about it, I, I can't help but agree with you. Um, the film definitely uh, is too long. It and and the second act is immensely stuffed. And while I appreciate some of the the larger scenes, um, the um, the chicken scene out in the, where, you know, the truck flipping over, um, after he's sort of, after Batman has skittered under with his bat pod right, and right. sort of trapped the tires. I think those are amazing, astounding moments that sort of stand, stood out to me and stand out to me. They seem but, like a climax. It's like there's 14 climaxes in the second half of the film. That's, that's the, the weirdness of it. It's like it, it's climbing and climbing in the first half and then like climax, Oh, but that's not the end. There's another climax. Right, oh, but right. that's not the end. There's another climax, and you're like, well, how many climaxes are there in this film? Yeah, the um, it, it's a film with stamina, mm. um, and 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 it, and it asks for equal stamina from the audience. I was gonna say, yeah, it's a film that um, requires stamina for sure. Yeah, and um, well, more demands than asks mm. so, because the film is it doesn't change when you watch it, um, and so, um. I think that uh, it's definitely addled by those problems. Uh, And the ferry scene, I remember back uh, in 2008 when I was first hearing about the film, much closer to the release that the ending goes on for far too long. But now I'm starting to think and really just to um, commit to the notion that the ending, quote unquote, is too long because it comes at the end of this sort of repeated... um, build up and crash this crescendo and decrescendo mm-hmm. um the ending's too long because different... it starts an hour into the film and then continues for another hour and a half i think it's the uh the big the big problem with its finale is that the finale is like the second half of the film it is one enormous long finale but it's not like say the avengers final battle that that's a very long action scene it would be like 10 of those battles cut a little bit shorter but spread out over the course of the second half of that film, with just the awful, uh, unfor- or completely forgettable uh, aliens. Um, <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Of that course. just uh, that would be torture. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I think that um, it definitely. There's sort of this. There's sort of the the main film, and within it, this <laughs> this. Uh, project of a finale that is sort of wedged in uh, underneath it or the seeds of it are planted and then you just sort of watch helplessly as it grows and takes right. over the entire thing right right um, and i think that's that's why i'm so enamored with um i think iron man is actually a brilliant film uh i don't think dread is a br- brilliant film but it's a very good film but both of those movies what i love about them on a personal level is that you watch either of them you you flip it on and it just flies by. It feels like you watched a half-hour television episode, and all you want is more. 
and Definitely. in both yeah. of those movies, and that's not the case with the Dark Knight. It's no, like it's um, like you just ran a marathon, you know. Yeah, when I finish when I finished this film, I uh, I took a deep breath. I made a sandwich. Um, I had uh, a conversation. I, I needed to sort of decompress from the film, um, and I know that when I originally saw it, uh, I spent a long time just thinking about it. And then when it was re-released, um, because they actually had, if I'm recalling correctly, sort of this award season campaign uh, for it. Oh, right, right, right. Uh, because, of, uh, because of the critical response, well, I think one thing that you can't deny about it is that it was, uh, is the praise that it was given, and, and you're not denying it. Uh, you're well aware of it. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, but, I was questioning it. I was questioning right. it. <laughs> Um, but at that time in January, and this is what really cemented the film in for me, was uh, rewatching it in IMAX, uh, in real IMAX, um, at um, the closest uh, theater. Like a um, real 70 millimeter. Yes. IMAX, yeah. um, and that was uh, with, um, you know, the, the 10,000 watts of sound. That was just an experience like no other. Um, and so that sort of cements the film as an experience, but you know, I, um, I went to see that film, uh, with a friend, you know, we got dinner first and then we <laughs> saw the film and then that was the end of the night. There was nothing that could be done after that. Um, you know, we just go home and go to sleep. And, and that's, I think sort of maybe the problem with the film is that it is, it's such an experience that it is ultimately exhausting as engrossing as I find it. Yeah, no, I I agree. So I think that that's really what it comes down to with the film is that it's um I would like it to be emotionally exhausting. What I I do come out with like a blue sort of pallor at the end of the film because it is right. really depressing. Um uh and and I got to say that that's something that it's a question I have about the film. Is it really appropriate for a superhero film to end on such a depressing note? Especially since it was another four years before we got the uplifting Dark Knight Rises, which was a reason I liked that movie, because it's so hopeful. Um, and this movie just does not end on a positive note at all. It's just Batman takes the blame for everything. Harvey Dent's dead. We barely got to see him, etc., etc. And um, uh, so, but I'd like, I, but if it were just just end on that note, and we can ignore the fact that it's a superhero movie for just a moment, um, that would be fine. But I don't come out of it exhausted emotionally, uh, or not just emotionally. I come out of it exhausted uh, again because of just its sheer. And it's not just runtime. I can come out of Lord of the Rings. You know, The Two Towers is a brilliantly paced film, and I don't come out of it at the end going, "Wow, that was a long movie." I come out of it energized and excited because it's such an you know the pacing in that movie is just so moving everything forward sure. um whereas i would say the the opposite for the theatrical edition of return of the king which has like this movie several climaxes that really just don't seem to end it just goes on and on and on and i have a feeling that's the way the third hobbit movie will be too because it's basically one big battle scene right, um, right. uh but you know i'm not gonna i, I reserve judgment uh, on that but Sure. So, so it's not. I don't want to make the blanket statement that all long movies are feel long. There are no, plenty of yeah. long movies that feel very short, and there are short movies that feel very long. The worst are the ones that are both long and feel long, which would be, um, you know, Age of Extinction or any you know, pick, pick, <laughs> pick your poison on that. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. so, so it's it's really a question of this is a decent film that's stretched too long. It's too overstuffed. Um, but ultimately, it's it's something that what, what I am glad is I've gone back, 
looked at it now, and I would be willing to revisit it as a, um, you know, if somebody were like, hey, you want to sit down and watch The Dark Knight? I'm, I'm less reticent now than I was, say, a couple of years ago. Well, I'm glad. <laughs> um, I'm glad you were able to uh, stop by and talk about The Dark Knight uh, for its sixth anniversary, and I'm, I'm hope- hopefully we'll get to do this again sometime. Definitely, yeah. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. <laughs>